Brad, this is John Merrill in Alabama. I'm calling you again. Oh, hello, Mr. Secretary. Yes, you are calling me again. Which is kind of weird. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Not in Alabama. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internet, uh, on the Progressive Voices channel, on the Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, and this great country of ours. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Maybe uh, that's not true, according to the Alabama Secretary of State, but we'll get to that in a minute. Those uh, that call you heard at the top was uh, one of several that the Secretary of State John Merrill made to me over the holiday weekend as part of a bizarre string. Well, let me not get ahead of myself. <laughs> yeah, don't. There is a lot going on today. Uh, much of it crazy and, uh, frankly, unnecessary nonsense by the President of the United States for a change. He has now pardoned a right-wing troll by the name of Dinesh D'Souza who has made a career out of attacking Barack Obama, but also pled guilty to election fraud felonies just a very few years back, specifically knowingly breaking campaign finance laws by giving thousands of dollars to his mistress and to his assistant to donate to a Republican U.S. Senate candidate in New York uh, after he and his wife had maxed out all they were allowed to give to that candidate. It was a blatant violation of election law, which D'Souza admitted to, admitted he knew it was a violation, but he did it anyway, and he was uh, charged for those violations a few years back. But Donald Trump pardoned him today for some reason, Sending the message, I guess, that election fraud is A-OK when it comes to this president. It's OK as long as a Republican does it. Also, Trump appears to be all in for trade wars with our allies in Canada and Mexico and the European Union today. He announced his intention to move forward with tariffs on aluminum and steel which our allies have vowed to respond to with trade restrictions of their own, all sending the markets into various forms of chaos, the Dow plunged, etc., etc. So we will have time, I'm sure, to get to some of that 
uh, and much more later or at least in another show. We'll see because uh, I got a lot to cover today. Uh, also later, hopefully today, Desi Doyen, you will join us for a Green News report. Yes, I hope so. I hope so, too. But we'll see. Uh, <laughs> first, I, I've mentioned this bizarre exchange that I've been having with the Alabama Secretary of State, John Merrill, over the past week. He's been uh, calling, sending kind of insane emails, and I want to share those insane emails with you today. I Frankly, I wasn't sure what to do with them. I wasn't going to do anything with them, really. And then, as they just got increasingly more insane this past week, uh, and I was thinking there's something wrong with this guy, I started wondering whether he was feeling pressure because uh, Alabama has primary elections coming up this coming Tuesday. But then it also occurred to me that he might be feeling pressure if he was on the ballot himself next Tuesday. And I looked it up. Sure enough, he is. So now his notes, these kind of crazy notes, become a matter of public importance, I think, to voters, uh, to the electorate. Uh, so I want to share them with you. And uh, we'll see what Alabama voters do with it if they want this guy to be their secretary of state for another four years. But by way of giving you some background here, some background, uh, well, some context, let me start uh, here first. Ben Rhodes, a longtime advisor to Barack Obama during his eight years as uh, president, has a new book out. Ben Rhodes does. It's called The World As It Is, in which he recounts Obama's reaction to the 2016 election of Donald Trump. The New York Times' Peter Baker wrote about this, uh, wrote about the book on Wednesday night, shared some of the interesting inside reactions and conversations with Obama during that period uh, in the White House just before and after the 2016 election, including how Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell prevented the administration from making more noise about evidence that foreign actors thought to be from Russia, might be attempting to interfere with that election. What Rhodes um, says they didn't know before the election was that the FBI uh, was actually investigating whether or not the Trump campaign may have been involved in colluding in some fashion with Russia. As the Times reports, Mr. Rhodes writes that neither he nor Obama knew at the time before the election that there was an FBI investigation into contacts between Mr. Trump's campaign and Russia, despite Mr. Trump's recent unsubstantiated claims that the departing president had placed a spy or multiple spies in his campaign. Mr. Rhodes writes that he did not learn about the FBI investigation until after leaving office and then from the news media. Mr. Obama did not impose sanctions on Russia in retaliation for the meddling before the election because he believed it might prompt Moscow into hacking into Election Day vote tabulations. Say that one more time just for the back, the kids in the back. He was worried that if there was sanctions placed on Russia, that Russia might hack into vote tabulations or vote tabula uh, tabulators or computer tabulators here in uh, in the U.S. on Election Day. So he was concerned that they might hack Election Day vote tabulations, even as Obama and his national security folks at the time, if you remember before the election, they were talking about how difficult it would be for presidential elections to be hacked because our systems are so decentralized, they're not connected to the Internet. 
which, by the way, is totally false. So even then, if Baker's coverage of Rhodes's book here is accurate, they knew that computerized vote tabulation systems could, in fact, yes, be hacked, and they were worried about it. Of course, they've known that for years, or they should have known that. But they seem to have a very difficult time admitting that, despite folks like me, very few folks, I guess, uh, like me, uh, pointing it out repeatedly, warning about it now for about some 15 years. You and national computer security experts as well. Now, how long uh, was I called a conspiracy theorist for making these points and for warning that this would come back to haunt us all if voters were not able to know that their votes were being tabulated correctly? And by the way, as far as we know, the Department of Homeland Security, nor anyone else, has ever examined either the ballots from 2016 or the computer tabulators from 2016 to find out if, in fact, they were manipulated in the 2016 presidential election. At least that's according to the uh, what the DHS told us uh, at a, uh, a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing last year. Jeanette it, Manfra, is that was Jeanette her name? Manfra, the Assistant Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, in a Senate hearing in June of 2017. And despite all of that uh, and all that we do know about this, we are now heading towards another major election, the crucial 2018 midterm elections, using these same hackable voting and tabulation computers. The only difference now, I guess, is that most everyone in their right mind, at least, knows how easily manipulated these systems are. And now that it's frankly too late to actually do much about it once again before the 2018 elections, primaries are already underway across the country. Now, now that it's too late, we get more articles about how concerned everyone is about it. For example, today from Reuters, uh, ahead of November election, old voting machines stir concerns among U.S. officials. You know, I wonder if they just write these things and then they just uh, republish them, uh, you know, just a few weeks before elections every year. I mean, because every year we get these same elections once it's too late to really do anything about it. And anyway. then they wait until after the election to start ignoring it. U.S. election officials responsible for managing more than a dozen close races this November share a fear. Outdated voting machines in their districts could undermine confidence in election results that will determine which party controls the U.S. Congress. In 14 of the 40 most competitive states, Americans will cast ballots on voting machines that do not provide a paper trail to audit voters' intentions. If a close election is questioned, according to a Reuters analysis of data from six states and the Verified Voting Foundation. Those states include uh, races in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Texas, Florida, Kansas, and Kentucky. Nationwide, they write of 435 congressional seats that are up for grabs this year. 144 are in districts where some or all voters will not have access to machines with any paper records. While something could go wrong in any of those districts, it is in the close elections where a miscount or a perception of a miscount matters most. Thank you for pointing that out, Reuters. Most of the dozen-plus state and local election officials interviewed by Reuters say they're worried about bad actors hacking the older electronic voting machines to alter ballots. By the way, it's not just the older electronic voting machines. It's also the newer computer tabulators that can also be hacked. Uh, but with those 100 uh, percent unverifiable touchscreens, they're worried because uh, there will be no way to verify the results, as someone has been yelling and screaming for some years. 
But the officials worry most about voters losing trust in elections, Reuters says, because officials would not be able to visibly demonstrate that the tally was indeed accurate. Pennsylvania's election commissioner, Pennsylvania, where they use 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems across the entire state. Their election commissioner, Jonathan Mark, said voter confidence is a really big thing. <laughs> and it's the battle I worry about losing. You've already lost it, my friend. Uh, his state has four of the country's most hotly contested elections, all of them in counties that use older machines. The Department of Homeland Security, says Reuters, declared last year that Russian hackers had probed election-related computers in 21 of 50 states during the 2016 election and that a small number were compromised. U.S. officials said, however, there was no evidence that votes were altered in 2016. Actually, what they said is they've seen no evidence. And if you pay attention to what they actually said, it's because they did not go looking for any such evidence. Intelligence agencies now expect more meddling leading up to the 2018 elections. Even if hackers don't get in, if voters are led to believe that the results are faked or mistallied, the mistrust of the system could undermine faith in elections, says Washington State Secretary of State Kim Wyman. She says if people perceive somebody cheated, then it's as if somebody cheated. She is correct which is why I have, for more years than I wish to count now, been warning that voters need to be able to, to vote, to have their vote counted, to have it counted accurately, and in a way that they can know that it has been counted accurately. Because even if it has been counted accurately, even if it hasn't been hacked or manipulated, if people don't know that, it might as well have been hacked because loss, uh, loss of confidence in elections and democracy, and America, the American idea itself. These things are true, whether or not an election is, is hacked or not, whether it's manipulated by an insider who can flip results of any election in seconds without detection on these computer tabulators, or even in the case of simple programming errors, which happen all the time. The public, members of all parties or no parties at all, they need to know their elections are being accurately tallied. And to that end, elections must be fully transparent and overseeable by the public. So to that end, let's go ahead and take a break here and pick up on this bizarre story of the Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill and what had begun as an, an attempt last year by election transparency experts to make sure that results from the state's computer tabulators were actually overseeable in Alabama in that state's highly contentious special election for the U.S. Senate last December. You remember that? And that resulted, by the way, in the uh, Secretary of State John Merrill blocking election attorneys and journalists like myself on Twitter last year. And then this incredibly bizarre string, string of uh, emails and phone calls that he's been sending me over the past week that I'll share with you momentarily. And, oh, yeah, this is all in advance of midterm primary elections next Tuesday in Alabama, in which the secretary of state himself will be a candidate on the ballot. I guess he'll be overseeing those elections himself. There's that at least. But voters need to know about this guy before then. Quick break, and we're back with that story next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to Alabama, to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As I said, I I was not going to cover this story at all, frankly, because it's just mostly embarrassing for the Republican, Alabama's Republican Secretary of State, John Merrill. But, uh, you know, and I didn't know what to do with it for the last uh, week or so. But once I realized that he was actually running for re-election, that he was going to be on the ballot this coming Tuesday, uh, June 5, uh, for the primaries in Alabama, I felt like voters needed to know about this guy. Oh, yeah. At this point, it becomes newsworthy. Yeah, I, I think it does. I Well, we'll let listeners, I guess, decide. But I'm, based on these emails I'm going to share with you, uh, this guy seems to be unbalanced. Is that a nice way to put it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, We don't usually endorse candidates at bradblog.com or on this show, since candidates generally, they have enough supporters, but voters themselves don't have nearly enough supporters. So we support them. We cover election integrity on behalf of the public, the voters, which means, you know, we even often go to bat for supporters of some pretty terrible candidates because, yes, even their supporters deserve to know if their candidate won or lost the election. And our system of democracy requires that all voters be able to walk away from an election knowing with certainty who actually won or lost. But with that in mind, with voters in Alabama going to the polls on Tuesday and early and absentee voting already underway, if you haven't voted yet there in Alabama in the Republican primary for secretary of state, I don't know much about him, but Merrill's opponent is a guy by the name of Michael Johnson. He seems not crazy from the little that I've read about him, uh, which, frankly, is more than I can honestly argue at this point about Merrill himself, based on my experiences now with him last year on Twitter and then again over this past week via email, which I'll share with you in a moment. Uh, Also, on the Democratic side, I don't know much about either of them, but Lula Albert and Heather Milam are both running for Secretary of State. You might want to consider them. But I will note if uh, John Merrill and his uh, voters in some fashion get screwed by the voting machines uh, in Alabama next Tuesday, guess what? I will still fight like hell for him and his voters, in truth, to make sure all the votes were counted and counted accurately there. All right, let's start here. Last December, you'll recall there was a very closely watched and contentious U.S. uh, Senate special election between Republican Roy Moore and Democrat Doug Jones. On election night, the reported results were very close, but Doug Jones ended up being declared the winner. It took a while for Moore to finally concede. A few days, a few weeks, I think, actually. Uh, He claimed there was fraud in the election, but he was not able, under Alabama law, to ask for a recount in the election, to ask for or pay for one, because state law allows recounts in federal races. This was a U.S. Senate race. Um, recounts in federal races only when the margin is less than one half of a percent between the candidates. 
had it been a state race, uh, had it been John Merrill's secretary of state race, uh, he could ask for if he as long as he wanted to pay for it, he could ask for a recount, but not in a federal race for some reason under Alabama state law. Nonetheless, on election night, Secretary Merrill went on CNN as everyone were watching these uh, very close results coming in, and he told uh, viewers of CNN. There's always a chance of a recount because any candidate can ask for a recount, and if they pay for it, they can receive a recount. Now, as it turns out, John Merrill was wrong about that. Uh, UC Irvine election law expert and professor Rick Hassan pointed that out on Twitter. He had looked very closely at uh, Alabama's election code and he discovered that it appeared to be uh, that the secretary of state was wrong about that. In Alabama, you couldn't ask for a recount in uh, in federal races like this. So he Rick Hassan politely asked Secretary Merrill on Twitter to cite the state election code to support uh, this claim that any uh, any candidate could ask for a recount if they're willing to pay for it. He asked for where does that say that in the code or if not, then correct the error that he had given to the public on CNN in that closely watched race. But instead of citing election law to support what he had said on CNN and instead of correcting it, saying, oh, I misspoke or I, I, I missed that part of the law or something. Instead of that, John Merrill, secretary of state of Alabama, simply blocked Rick Hassan, election ex- expert, blocked him on Twitter entirely. Didn't respond, just made it so that Rick Hassan could no longer uh, talk to John Merrill or see what John Merrill had been tweeting, etc. Now, that election came after some election transparency experts who we had had on this show at the time had gone to court in Alabama just before the election to argue that the state's election systems, uh, the digitally scanned, hand-marked paper ballots uh, in Alabama, that those should be set to retain the digitally captured ballot images so that they could easily be examined by the public afterwards without having to disturb the paper ballots. In other words, when these uh, these digital scanners read the handmarked paper ballots, they take a photograph, if you will, of the ballot. And it is those photographs that are used by the computer tabulator to come up with the results. And so since that is material that these election transparency folks felt should be retained uh, under federal law, Uh, And uh, since those can be shown to the public without messing with the paper ballots, they went to court. They tried to get an order to have those machines have a software switch on those uh, scanners set to save all of the captured images so they could be reviewed later. Um, And we covered that at the time. Uh, And what the uh, court, the Alabama court agreed with those experts and said, yes, uh, John Merrill, Secretary John Merrill, should send a note to all of the uh, counties and ask them to flip the switch, to turn it on, to make sure that it retains all of these captured images after the election. But as we also reported at the time, instead of sending that email to county officials, as the judge had ordered, Secretary Merrill instead went to the state Supreme Court and he got a stay on the lower court's ruling, uh, claiming that uh, the he did not have the jurisdiction to send such an email order and that it was too close to an election to make such a change to the to the tabulator systems, which I actually agreed with at the time. Anyway, the issue came up on Twitter 
Uh, I was I can't even remember who I was speaking with at the time, but John Merrill jumped into the conversation that I was having with other people on Twitter in late December over the holiday. Again, it's always over the holiday. Um, so I was having this conversation with others there about the ESNS. Uh, that's the voting machine company, the vendor, uh, and the, the tabulation systems that are used in Alabama. And Merrill jumped in to say, quote, our machines do not capture or preserve the digital ballot images. Now, I knew that he was wrong about that. The particular systems used in, in most of the state do, in fact, capture digital ballot images for all ballots that are scanned, but Merrill either didn't seem to know that or wouldn't admit to uh, being wrong about it, despite my politely asking him to uh, either correct the record or share evidence to support his claim. And this Twitter exchange, which we talked about on the show uh, after the new year, because it was so crazy, I also posted it on uh, the Brad blog. I'll link to it again tonight. But... Instead of giving me the evidence to support his argument, he ended up blocking me as well entirely on Twitter instead of correcting it or showing me the evidence that I was wrong. Uh, I had evidence that I was right, of course, but I wanted to see what he had. So instead of that, he just blocked me. So I could no longer, as a journalist, follow the Alabama Secretary of State's comments on Twitter and I was joining an esteemed crowd of election experts like Rick Hassan and another uh, election expert, Professor Josh Douglas from the University of Kentucky College of Law. He had also been blocked by John Merrill on Twitter after politely responding to him about the unconstitutionality of public officials blocking people on Twitter, which almost brings us up to this past week when a federal court in New York found that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, was in violation of the Constitution because he had blocked people on Twitter, people that he saw as political opponents. Josh Douglas, who had been blocked by uh, John Merrill, uh, joined me last week on the show to talk about that case and about being blocked by Secretary Merrill in violation of the First Amendment. So as a courtesy, before airtime, before Josh Douglas joined me on the show, I sent an email to Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, who I hadn't talked to since he blocked me on Twitter uh, last December. So I sent an email to him and to uh, his communications director to see if they had comment about this federal court case finding the president in violation of the Constitution. And I just want to break in yeah. and point out here that this is standard journalistic practice. You're about to talk to somebody. You give them an opportunity to comment. So you did what a standard reporter would do. You gave them that opportunity. I did. Plus, I thought it would be nice. I thought I would be a nice guy. Let him respond before we went on the air and talked about him, talk about him blocking me, blocking uh, uh, Professor Douglas, etc. But now that the federal court had found that public officials are in violation of the Constitution by blocking people who they saw as political opponents on Twitter. And I didn't feel I was a political opponent of uh, of Merrill's, but whatever. Um, I sent him a you know request for comment if they if they have any uh, comment and if they would be unblocking the people now that that who had been blocked by the secretary now that the federal court had decided that was unconstitutional. And let's see, uh, Merrill's office sent a response. Um, his uh, deputy chief of staff, actually John Bennett, uh, sent a response from Secretary Merrill, quoting directly. With Merrill saying, I will continue to use my social media forums 
the way I have utilized them in the past, they will not be utilized by other users to express their political views or promote their agendas. If someone is unable to reach me through social media, they are always welcome to contact me at the office at blah, 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 or on my cell phone at blah, blah, blah. Well, after receiving that statement from Secretary Merrill, I shared it in full on Twitter. I shared it. I had redacted the phone numbers as a courtesy because it was, you know, his cell phone. Uh, And then I also shared his statement on air on the broadcast with my guest that day, Josh Douglas. Uh, So after the show, I got that reply just before airtime from his office. And then after the show, I sent a reply uh, to John Bennett, his uh, Merrill's chief of staff, deputy chief of staff and communications director uh, to thank him for that note, for that comment. I said, thank you, John. The secretary's statement seems to be in direct contradiction with this week's federal court ruling and calling my uh, and calling Twitter, quote, my social media forum that others may not use to express, quote, their political views or promote their agendas. I said that's disturbing on several levels, including the fact that neither myself nor noted constitutional attorneys Josh Douglas or Rick Hassan were expressing either a political view or an agenda to my knowledge before being blocked by Secretary Merrill. Nonetheless, I wrote, I shared the response in full without the phone numbers on today's show and would welcome any further clarification as to how the response aligns with either the federal court ruling or the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment, if you or the secretary care to offer it best, Brad. Polite note, polite follow-up. A few hours later, Secretary Merrill himself responded via email to that uh, follow-up comment. He said, <laughs> he said, he didn't say Brad, he just jumped right into it. He said, I know you have a problem, and your problem is bigger than the one that I have the ability to solve. I didn't ask you to, and I, this is sort of out of nowhere. He's accusing me of having a problem. Anyway, I didn't ask you to remove my phone numbers. I gave them to you so you and your readers would have a way to reach me. That's why I shared them with you and others on Twitter. You have a right <laughs> to speak to me, and I have a right to determine how I receive your message. You don't have a right to speak to me or communicate with me any way you want to. Let me make this clear. I will not be unblocking anyone that I have blocked. I'm not preventing anyone from communicating with me, but they're not communicating with me on Twitter if they've been blocked by me. If you have any questions, you can call me at, and he gives his office and cell phone number again, which I'm sorry, I just don't feel comfortable sharing on air. Uh, and that was that was the note. And before I could respond... The next morning, John Bennett, the deputy chief of staff and communications director, uh, he's been CC'd, mind you, on all of the, on this entire thread. Uh, he responded much more politely to say, Brad, please let me know when you would be interested in hosting Secretary Merrill on your show to fully engage your First Amendment right. I attempted to contact your public relations representative via phone yesterday, but she would not connect me to anyone on your team, nor was she aware of the Brad blog or anyone named Brad Friedman, so that we could arrange a discussion live on the air. Please contact me at your earliest convenience so that we can continue dialogue on this issue. Thank you, John Bennett, Deputy Chief of Staff, Communications Director. Now, 
I don't have a public relations representative, so I'm not altogether clear who Mr. Bennett had actually spoken to. Uh, but I replied via email that morning. We're now uh, last Friday is where we are, Friday before the uh, long holiday weekend break. I said, I don't have a public relations representative, so I'm not sure who you spoke with, but you are welcome to call me directly at, and I gave my uh, phone number. Adding that said, we are off the uh, off for the holiday weekend until Tuesday. If you'd like to call and discuss then, I'd be happy to, of course. I then also replied to Secretary Merrill's note in which he said, uh, I know you have a problem and your problem is bigger than one that I have the ability to solve. Uh, adding that he wouldn't be unblocking anybody and that he was angry that I removed his phone numbers before sharing them on air and on Twitter. Uh, In response, I said, what problem is it that I have, sir? Please feel free to let me know. As a common courtesy, I had removed your phone numbers before publicly sharing your remarks or sharing them on radio. You've blocked me on Twitter, so I don't know what you have shared on Twitter. Nonetheless, I was trying to respect your privacy. I do know, however, based on your remarks, that you haven't taken the time to read the federal court ruling finding that your behavior on Twitter is in violation of the U.S. Constitution. The right you are concerned about and how to make sure to retain it without violating the rights of others is discussed in that ruling. I recommend you read it, but that's up to you, of course. Your seemingly self-defeating war against journalists like myself and highly regarded election law attorneys, all of whom have been quite polite with you, while correcting erroneous information you've offered to the public, remains bizarre. You are welcome, of course, to let me know why it isn't and why Federal Judge Buckwald was wrong in her findings. Please note, I will be on holiday until next Tuesday, so if I'm unable to answer your responses right away, I hope you'll understand. Best, Brad. So again, that was on Friday, before we were hitting the road for a long holiday weekend for the Memorial Day holiday. Uh, And shortly after sending that note, I did, in fact, hit the road. Sometime later, that same day, while I was on the road for the long holiday weekend, Merrill called me and left a brief voicemail asking me to call him back. Brad, this is John Merrill in Alabama. Give me a call when you get a chance. And I think he left his number again, but we're not going to play that for you on air either. So, uh, but before I could do, before I could actually call him back over that holiday weekend, he sent another email, which uh, I wouldn't receive for several days because I was on the road and I was not checking email for a blessed change for a few minutes. Uh, his follow-up email uh, read, I actually don't understand because you expect me and others to be available to you at all times, anytime. So I've already called you and left a message. When you call me, I'll be happy to speak to you, but don't worry, you're not going to get unblocked and neither are the others I have blocked. Now this gets even crazier, so don't worry, this gets even more nuts. Uh, so, so he he called, left that message to you know. I thought it was a polite phone call. Actually, he asked me to call him back. Yeah. Um, but then he puts this second sort of rude email uh, before I had a chance to check any of it because I was on the road. So uh, by Monday, Memorial Day, the Memorial Day holiday, I actually um, checked my weekend email. Uh, and saw his notes, and I replied to him. 
As noted, in my two previous messages in response to you and your staff, I was largely off the grid over the past several days for a rare holiday break, so my apologies for this delayed reply. You have not clarified your emailed insult about my having a, quote, problem to explain what the problem is, so some clarity there would still be very much appreciated. Does it extend to the constitutional and election law experts who have also been blocked by you on Twitter after politely correcting your inaccurate public comments? That is a serious query, since it was a serious charge that you offered in your email, so your clarification would be appreciated. As to the actual substance of your remark, I wrote, No, I don't expect you to be available to me at all times, anytime. I have no idea where you got that idea. I'd like to be able to read your Twitter feed and respond to you and others as I cover elections as a journalist. That's particularly true one week out from Alabama's primaries where statements by its Secretary of State are of note to the public. If you choose not to respond to any one person's tweets, that is, of course, your right, as the federal court case makes clear. It also finds that what you are doing by blocking the public is unconstitutional, even as it also argues you have no requirement to either read nor even see my tweets or anybody else's, nor any requirement to respond to them if you do not wish. Thus, the assertions you continue to make... Here that I expect you to be available to me at all times, any time, along with the other weird attacks against myself and others, become more puzzling with each strange choice that you make. As you dig in your heels on uh, cutting off public access to the public Twitter forum that you have otherwise chosen to use for your official work as Secretary of State of Alabama. So that was my reply to him. I, I was trying to continue to be polite. I think I was. Was it's, I? It sounds like it to me that you're polite. He writes back and says, if you want to talk to me, I would advise you to give me a call on my cell phone anytime or office phone during work hours. That came uh, just a how quickly did that come? Uh, oh, that came a few hours later. So uh, but three minutes after sending that one line email, he then called again. According to my voicemail records, he called again, left another message similar, saying, I'm calling you again. Please call me back if you want. But by this point, you know, given that he has been blocking me on Twitter uh, to avoid public conversations, to avoid written a written record of what he has to say, frankly, I was not so inclined to have a phone conversation with him. I, I thought a written email record might be better. Well, it's certainly verifiable. And uh, frankly, I was not particularly inclined to give him access to my public forum to have him on the show, since he was talking about his public forum as if he owned Twitter. Well, I actually do own my own radio show, and um, I, I was not, you know, he didn't want to have a conversation with me on Twitter, so I don't know why I should give him airtime to have that conversation here, given that he was denying so many, not just me, but so many access to what he thinks is his public forum on Twitter, which he does not own. And by the way, since I've been reporting on this, I keep hearing from a lot of folks that, yes, he blocked me as well. So on Tuesday, in any event, I was back at work. Finally, I responded to his emails. I thanked him for his subsequent calls over the holiday weekend, apologized again that I was uh, not able to respond because I was spending some downtime with my family. Uh, I wrote, it seems you've made your position very clear. You do not intend to unblock those you have blocked on the public Twitter forum where you use your account for public work. I had been hoping you would explain why that is. 
and how that is not in violation of the constitutional findings of the federal court, which also offered ways in which you could keep yourself from having to see anything you did not want to see while protecting the rights of your constituents and those whose work, like journalists and election attorneys, rely on being able to cover the positions of public officials. So in that court ruling, the judge pointed out that uh, he doesn't have to see anybody's tweets if he wants. He can just put them on mute. He could put me on mute and never see anything that I say, but it would allow me to see what he says and allow me to participate in conversation in response to his Twitter feed. Yeah, it's a very basic function of, of Twitter. You don't have to block people. You can just mute them. And everybody's fine. That's what the judge noted. And everybody and everything is constitutional. Everyone's rights are minded. Uh, I noted that he had offered no justification for the behavior, um, his weird behavior to date, um, other than he, you know, doesn't feel like allowing people who he doesn't agree with in some fashion to follow him on Twitter. Uh, and then I noted, uh, finally, and I'll, I'll post these emails in full on bradblog.com uh, tonight, so you can download all of this to see that I am, you know, I'm not misrepresenting this. Um, I asked, finally, as Alabama holds its primaries next Tuesday and most of your computer tabulation systems in the state allow for the retention of all digital ballot images as determined in state court during the U.S. Senate special election last year, Have you instructed counties to turn on that feature to save all ballot images in Tuesday's federal primary so as to retain election materials for potential public scrutiny for the 22 months required by federal law? Thank you in advance for a hopefully direct response to at least this last question. Best, Brad. So I can't talk to him on Twitter. I can only talk to him via email or by phone, but I'd like a written record of his response to that question. Now, instead of uh, calling me back an hour or so later, uh, the phone rang again. It was an Alabama number. I assumed it was him, so I just went ahead and picked up. But instead, it was his deputy chief of staff and communications director, John Bennett, who was very polite. We had a very nice conversation. Bennett actually, frankly, seemed somewhat embarrassed by his his, uh, boss's behavior here. We discussed... Um, We discussed these issues, mainly these two key issues, blocking folks on Twitter uh, and the federal court ruling in the Southern District of New York that found that Donald Trump and presumably other public officials violated constitutional free speech rights by blocking people. And uh, we talked about the original matter that uh, had resulted in Merrill blocking me on Twitter last December and uh, a number of other well-regarded election law attorneys, etc., Specifically, I pointed out to Mr. Bennett that, yes, as discussed in that Twitter thread last year, the uh, Alabama's computerized ballot scanners made by ESNS do, in fact, capture digital ballot images of ballots when they're scanned, and they may be set by election officials to preserve all the ballots. Bennett was very polite. He noted um, that, you know, while our conversation was productive, Twitter can be less so at times, <laughs> which I agreed. Yep. Um, he thanked me for the conversation. He told me to uh, that he was going to get back to me after checking with the vendors, the ESNS, uh, the Election System and Software Company, to make sure I was right about that. He was going to check with them, get back to me about that. The that the ballot images can be retained. And that he was also going to review the federal court ruling in New York regarding public officials blocking Twitter followers. So... Uh, that sounded like uh, good news, encouraging news. Uh, I had told him that, you know, Secretary Merrill was uh, could mute if he wanted to, but blocking was uh, 
un, un, uh, unconstitutional. So uh, after sometime after that call, uh, he wrote me back. He said, Brad, uh, this is John Bennett now. Uh, per our conversation, I discussed the issue of digital ballot images with our legal counsel who informed me that a ruling from the court was released on May, 20, May 18, 2018. I still plan to return your call regarding the Twitter practices once I review that court ruling. Well, that email included a uh, the Alabama Supreme Court's written ruling on this in response to Merrill, who had gone and overturned the lower court ruling just before the election. Um, and uh, so I, after getting off air, I took the time to actually read that ruling, wrote back to him, said thanks. That appears to be the ruling from December explaining why the Supremes in Alabama had stayed the lower court. Um, and for the record, I noted I agreed with the court on a number, if not all, of their points. And in that actual court ruling, they quote the, uh, the, the ESNS vice president, um, vice president for ballot management services, Mark Kelly, who says... Um, Let's see. According to this affidavit, the vendor, uh, he's the vendor of the electronic voting machines. He testified that some machines in the state do not create digital images at all, but some 2000 machines do have this ability. I quoted that back to John Bennett uh, to say, yeah, that actually proves my point. Um, and uh, as to the uh, Twitter issue, well, pl you know, please get back to me when you uh, have a chance to review that federal court ruling. So. He actually made my point. And now is where it gets really weird. In response to that note to uh, Bennett, which Merrill was CC'd on, Merrill writes back, you will never be unblocked. If you ever wish to speak to me, you need to call me on the phone. You have my telephone numbers. You have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I sent him a note saying, OK, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Why you wish to keep digging, I don't know. Um, he before it appears that he read that note, which I don't have time to read in full. He he wrote back and said, "You are like Monday morning quarterback, like the Monday morning quarterback who sits back and tells the head coach and the quarterback and the defensive coordinator and the middle linebacker all the mistakes they have made in the game on Sunday. However, you have never been in the arena, the arena." You have never played the game. You're only a spectator. You have never administered an election. You have no understanding of Alabama's election laws. Your opinion is irrelevant to us, and your commentary is neither interesting or useful to us. We have no interest in hearing from you for a multitude of reasons. You will never be unblocked. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I said, good God, man, what is wrong with you? As repeatedly noted, I'll wait for your evidence, any evidence, to support any of the arguments in question. Until then, the ridiculous insults are much appreciated, Brad. Uh, he, he, just one more. I swear this is almost over. Uh, he said, uh, Brad, he wrote back via email, you're probably a nice guy, but you have never had any experiences in elections. You have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. You simply read things in magazines and books and think you're an expert. Sorry. You probably also use the Internet, which we all know is infallible. I'm sure you've never even touched a piece of election equipment except when you were casting a ballot. Before you begin to comment on things, it would be nice if you had some real life experience instead of living with your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. And having someone answer the phone that is supposed to be your public relations person. What? 
This will be the last communication that you will have with me. I want to make sure you understand where I stand, and that is where you will never be. I am a nationally recognized expert in the field of elections. I did not seek this position out. That designation has been given to me for the successes we have experienced in our state. I'm sorry you cannot understand that. Maybe you should try and get a job with an election program system, and then you could contribute to the discussion as an expert in the field. I wrote a note that said something that began, thank you, you don't sound unhinged at all, Mr. Secretary. So uh, I'll, I'll post this entire thing. Like I said, I did not even want to cover this. But then when I realized that he, what this guy is actually running, is on the ballot next Tuesday, I felt like voters in Alabama need to know that this guy is kind of... Kind of weird, kind of unhinged, has issues with uh, with dealing with the press. And I would also just point out that I believe you've been covering elections, election systems, and election law for longer than John Merrill has been in the elections administration business. Well, that's true. He was first elected in 2014. I've been at this since something like 2004. Um, I've been invited to testify at the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission. And uh, but you know what? I, I don't cl you know claim to be some amazing expert. I actually think that if I make an argument, I should be able to support it with actual evidence that you don't have to trust me. You don't have to believe in me. You can read the evidence. And I shared that evidence with Mr. Merrill, uh, who uh, freaks out if anyone I guess I, I, you know, I don't even know what to say, but I wanted voters to know it, it, voters in Alabama because he is on the ballot Tuesday in these primaries. His opponent in the Republican primary is Michael Johnson. His uh, there are two Democrats that are running in their own primary, Lula Albert and Heather Milam. I have no evidence that either of them are insane uh, maybe they would make a better public official than the one who oversees elections right now in Alabama, John Merrill. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Hopefully Alabama voters do know. And as I said, I'll post this full email exchange from this past week with Merrill, as well as the similarly crazy Twitter exchange with him from last December at bradblog.com when I post the show uh, there tonight so you can share it with your friends in Alabama if you like. Gotta get out, do some green news after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Running late. Thanks, Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill. <laughs> so let's get right to it. Our latest Green News report. This is one of those days when you don't want to be right. Hurricane Maria's death toll in Puerto Rico, 70 times greater than the official government count. We were all looking in horror at the video that came out of Ellicott City. Maryland town hit with second 1,000-year flood in two years. 
FEMA denies reconstruction funds to some victims of Hurricane Harvey. Plus, new study finds U.S. insurers are not ready for climate change. All of those disasters and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This just in from the Department of Obvious Metaphors. A sinkhole has appeared on the White House lawn. It's true. It finally happened. The Earth is fighting back. Go Earth. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we now have news that, yes, in fact... The death toll in Puerto Rico was far, far worse than originally reported. Oh, yes. It's a heartbreaking and disturbing new study. It estimates that the actual death toll from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico last year is 70 times greater than the official government toll of just 64. Harvard Public Health researchers estimate that at least 4,600 people died in Puerto Rico from both direct and indirect impacts of the storm. And that's the lowball number. Yes. Twice as many as Hurricane Katrina, making Hurricane Maria the deadliest U.S. disaster in more than a century. The most prominent cause of death was interrupted medical care as victims waited weeks and months for federal help. In an interview with Latino Rebels Radio, San Juan Mayor Carmen Juline Cruz called it a tale of two disasters. One was made by the environment and the other one that was administration made. When, when I said we're dying here and you're killing us with your bureaucracy and your inefficiency, it was an SOS call. That call has still not been answered. Uh, Donald Trump, right after the uh, hurricane hit, said he was delighted that there were only 16 deaths. Well, he hasn't said a word since news of thousands being killed in the storm came out earlier this week. And you may or may not be surprised to find out that cable news is kind of ignoring this study as well. Media Matters reports that cable news covered the Roseanne Barr controversy for about 10 hours and has only devoted about 30 minutes to Puerto Rico. Mm. The 2018 Atlantic hurricane season officially begins on June 1st. But subtropical storm Alberto apparently didn't get the memo. The first named storm of the season, it made landfall on Monday in the Florida Panhandle. It killed two people in North Carolina and brought heavy rainfall and flash flooding across the southeast. It forced evacuations in North Carolina after the heavy rainfall compromised a dam. And U.S. residents are still struggling to recover from last year's hurricanes, which were the costliest on record. Politico reports that in Houston, FEMA has denied reconstruction funds for many low-income victims of Hurricane Harvey because they did not carry expensive flood insurance while living in a flood zone, a requirement that many U.S. homeowners are not aware of. Half of more than 700,000 applicants in Texas were rejected for any aid at all. Meanwhile, cleanup is underway in Ellicott City, Maryland, after the second catastrophic flash flood in less than two years hit on Sunday. It killed an off-duty National Guardsman trying to help rescue others. The city received nearly a foot of rain in just a few hours. NBC meteorologist Al Roker connected the dots between these increasingly heavy storms and climate change. The problem is we're seeing more and more of these heavy downpours. In the last 50 years, we've seen an increase of 55 percent 
percent in the Northeast, 42 percent in the Great Lakes, and 27 percent of greater rainfall and stronger storms. And that just continues to grow as we just continue to see climate change and more warm air making its way with moisture and causing bigger storms. Good for Al Roker. Good to hear that on network television, finally. Indeed. But the destructiveness of these flash floods is not just a consequence of climate change. Land management decisions, development in flood zones, aging infrastructure, and extensive pavement in the built urban environment are also crucial factors in flood events. Last month, Ellicott City received FEMA funding to build better flood controls after the last flood, but it came too late to be ready for this flood. Finally, a recent report from the Thomson Reuters Foundation concludes that U.S. insurance companies are not ready for climate change, that most have not adapted their strategies to address the whopping payouts associated with increasing extreme weather disasters. The lead author warns that insurers are treating weather disasters as isolated anomalous events not correlated to climate change, and that means, quote, insurers that ignore climate change will not put away enough money to cover their claims. Well, that's what government bailouts are for. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We're not ready, are we? Oh, we're so not ready. Um, I do have a very unfortunate follow-up. The storm in North Carolina, the death toll has uh, been upgraded to four people now have been killed as of airtime. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. And uh, my thanks, I guess, to my uh, to my guest today, Alabama Secretary <laughs> of State John Merrill. Also to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves to uh, do what we try to do every day to inform the electorate over them. Bradblog.com slash donate. Write me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. I won't block you. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Brad, this is John Merrill in Alabama. I'm calling you again. Oh,